This morning we'll be looking at Psalm 82. So please turn there with me in your Bibles. Psalm 82. And listen as I read, beginning at verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. This is God's word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let's pray together. Help us, O God, as we study this psalm this morning. We pray that you will use it to guide us as we navigate our way through this life. Help us to understand its meaning and its application to our lives. Help us to work out its implications. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This morning we're studying this psalm that I just read, Psalm 82. And you will have noticed immediately in verse 1 a reference to the gods. As Christians, we are monotheists, and so we believe in only one God. Therefore, this raises the question for us, who is referred to when it says here, the gods? Scholars fall into two basic categories when answering this question. Some say that the gods refer to those beings which are called gods by non-Christians, the fallen angels or the demons behind the curtain, so to speak, of the false religious systems of this world. So in the view of those scholars, God is here speaking to Allah and Baal and Krishna and Molech and so forth and the demons that masquerade as these gods in the world's false religious system. Other scholars say that the gods refers to the earthly magistrates whom God has appointed, according to Romans 13, to act in God's stead and in the temporal execution of justice in the here and now. In other words, the magistrate is to act in God's place, executing justice, and therefore the magistrates here are called gods. They are humans made in God's image, and they are acting in God's room and stead in their work of executing justice 
and therefore they resemble God in some sense and are therefore called gods. For our purposes this morning, I'm actually not even going to try to resolve that debate. It's something of a moot point with respect to our study this morning. And so I won't spend any further time trying to resolve that debate. I just want to touch it because it's obviously going to raise questions in the minds of many uh, when you hear a sermon from a monotheist referring to the gods. All that is important for us to see this morning, whoever the reference to the gods concerns, all that is important for us to see this morning is that God is speaking to those with power and influence over this world. Either God is speaking to the demons who are very much at work in this world through false religious systems, through tempting those in power, through setting themselves up as gods, masquerading as real gods, though they are not themselves actually gods. Either God is speaking to the demons of this world, the fallen angels, the powers and principalities, so to speak, who have influence and power over this world. Either God is speaking to them, or God is speaking to the magistrates, the kings and the presidents and the prime ministers and the judges and the sheriffs, and the marshals, and the police chiefs, and so on, and so forth. And they obviously also have power and influence over this world. God is speaking to those with power and influence over this world in Psalm 82. That's all we need to know for our purposes this morning. And since that is the case, then therefore, by way of application, whatever God is going to say to them, will be applicable to anyone with power and influence over this world. Government, police officers, social media influencers, activists, the rich, employers or bosses, pastors or church leaders, celebrities, etc. Think about it. Whatever God says to the gods of this world, whether they be the demons or the magistrates, whatever God says to the gods of this world pertaining to their exercise of influence and power would also apply to anyone with influence and power. So Psalm 82 is essentially God speaking truth to power. Psalm 82 is essentially God speaking truth to power. And what does God say to power? There is one do not and two do's, if you will. So let's look first at the do not. In verse two, God criticizes the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? The implication is that the gods should not do those things. Do not judge unjustly. Do not show partiality to the wicked. Now, are these two different things, or are they one and the same? Back in Leviticus 19 and verse 5, we read, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
in that verse in Leviticus, doing injustice is equated with being partial. Doing injustice is equated to being partial, either to the poor or to the great. Doing injustice is antithetical to righteous, impartial judgment. Those two things are set in contrast. Injustice and partiality, righteousness and impartiality. So with respect to judgment, we learn from Leviticus that injustice equals partiality. Injustice equals partiality. And justice equals impartiality. Circling back around then to Psalm 82 and verse 2, we see that the injunctions do not judge unjustly and do not show partiality to the wicked are really one and the same. This is a case of what is called parallelism, where it's basically the same thing said two different ways. So the do not in Psalm 82 is do not judge unjustly by showing partiality. This is the sole do not of Psalm 82. Let's look now at the two do's. First, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. And maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Again, though there are technically two statements, they mean one and the same thing. So I've grouped them together. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless and maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute essentially mean one and the same thing. So I've grouped them together. The gods of Psalm 82, whoever they may be, are to give justice and maintain the rights of those who are put in court for no legitimate reason. The gods of Psalm 82 are not to show partiality and therefore judge unjustly, but rather they are to give justice and to maintain the rights of the innocent but vulnerable. And so the first do of Psalm 82 is really just the other side of the coin with relation to the don't. Don't judge unjustly by showing partiality. Do give justice by maintaining the rights of the innocent. Okay, so far, can we all agree that this seems pretty obvious from an ethical perspective? Should a judge show partiality to anyone? Should one person be treated differently in court because of his socioeconomic status or because of his or her gender, because of his connections to people in high places or lack thereof, or because of his skin color? Obviously not. All different types of people should be treated equally in court. Justice is therefore the absence of partiality in judgment. It is seeing that people's rights are maintained irrespective of any and all other considerations. This is why Lady Justice 
the personification of justice in ancient Roman art is personified with a blindfold on. So, so far it's pretty basic, pretty obvious what God says. But now let's look at the second do. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Again, there are two statements, but again, they're parallel and synonymous. So we'll deal with them as one imperative. Rescue the weak and needy from the hand of the wicked. Now, if the wicked is the prosecutor, the job of the judge is to render a just judgment in defense of the weak and the needy. That's already been established. If this were all that verse 4 implied, it would just be an application of the principles that have already been enumerated in verses 2 and 3. However, there's another application latent in verse 4. What is the responsibility of the gods of Psalm 82 if the wicked is one of the other gods? In simpler terms, is it enough for a judge simply to render just judgments in his own courtroom, well knowing full well that injustice is being done in the adjacent courtroom? What is one judge to do if another judge is wicked? What would verse 4 require? The righteous judge should seek to rescue the weak and needy but innocent defendant, not only from the unjust accusations of a prosecutor, but also from the unjust judgments of another wicked judge. An obvious application then is that Christians with any sort of power and influence should use that power and influence as they are able to ensure not only that justice is done in your own courtroom, so to speak, but in every courtroom. Christians must be those who are blindfolded, as Lady Justice is, when exercising their own power and influence with respect to the rights of others. We ourselves must show impartiality as we use our power and our influence in this world with respect to the rights of others. However, if I may mix metaphors a little bit here, Christians must not turn a blind eye to the injustices around them. Christians are themselves to maintain the rights of all insofar as they have power and influence to do so. And Christians are to advocate for the maintenance of the rights of all whenever justice is being, pardon me, whenever injustice is being done within their moral proximity. And this pursuit of justice for all, in this pursuit of justice for all, Christians are aligning themselves with the Messiah or the Christ whose mandate involves reestablishing righteousness here on this earth. Turn with me to Psalm 72 for a moment. Psalm 72, that is, not 82, as we consider justice in relation to the Messiah or the Christ. Psalm 72, 
Psalm 72 was used as a coronation psalm for the kings of Israel and Judah. However, it finds its most ultimate fulfillment in that son of David who is the Messiah, to use the Hebrew term, or the Christ, to use the Greek. Psalm 72 anticipates the blessedness of the reign of the Messiah or the Christ over this world. And what does it say that that will be like? May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice, verse 2. And in verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let's just pause there for a moment. The Messiah is coming to render just judgments. The Messiah is coming to rescue the poor and the needy from the oppressor who implicitly withholds their rights from them or subverts their rights. So the Messiah is going to reestablish the rights of all people. Now look at verses 12 to 14. He delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper delivers them from what or whom? Let's keep reading. He has pity on the weak and the needy. Verse 13. Pity about what? Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Saves the lives of the needy. Saves their lives from what? Verse 14 will give us the answer now from oppression and violence. Again, the Messiah is coming to rescue the poor and needy from the oppressor who implicitly withholds their rights from them or subverts their rights. And the Messiah is going to protect the vulnerable from violence. The Messiah is going to reestablish the rights of all people in his kingdom. Specifically, in this case, the Messiah is going to reestablish the rights of all people to hold property and to enjoy security of person. In the fullness of the kingdom of Christ Jesus, Christ will deal with those who have committed injustice outside court the police officers who got away with acts of brutality, the judges who took bribes, any other criminal, including cop killers who got away with it in the here and now. Christ will deal with those who have committed injustice outside of court. And Christ will deal with those who have committed injustice in court. The judge who acquitted the guilty or passed a light sentence after receiving a bribe, perhaps outside of court, or because of his own prejudices. The judges who condemned the innocent. Look at verses 6 to 8, now of Psalm 82, back to our text for this morning. It seems that God is speaking in verses 6 and 7. He says, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is God's threat of judgment 
to the unjust gods of Psalm 82, whoever they may be. And verse 8 is the psalmist's petition for the saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth. And it is Christ's second coming when all of these things shall be fully and finally brought to pass. Listen, in the fullness of the kingdom of Christ, no one is deprived of due process. No one is detained or arrested without cause. No one is denied the right to hold property. No one is deprived of said property by theft or fraud or extortion or illegitimate confiscation. The Christ will see to it that there are no injustices done in his kingdom when it comes in its fullness at his return. The Christ will see to it that the new heavens and the new earth is a place where righteousness dwells. We long for that day. And in the meantime, in the meantime, as the people of Christ, let us do justice and advocate for justice as we are able. Let us use whatever power and influence we may have not to show partiality and judge unjustly, but rather ourselves to give justice and maintain the rights of others, but also to rescue those whose rights are being infringed by the wicked. We must ourselves do justice and advocate for justice. This is what God says in Psalm 82 to those with power and influence, and that is consistent with the intention and purpose of the Messiah to establish a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. So let us, as the people of the Messiah or the Christ, let us do justice and advocate for justice. Some applications. First, the woke crowd, so to speak, is correct in stating that silence is not an option in the face of injustice. However, a task facing us as Christians in this current cultural moment is to identify what is injustice and what is not injustice. Another task is to evaluate proposed solutions to perceived injustices and to evaluate the action steps that are proposed towards resolving these perceived injustices. Let me expand on all of that. Right now, not everything that is being called injustice truly is injustice, unless capitalism, merit-based rewards, democracy, and free speech are unjust. 
And that's obviously a bigger conversation. But some things that are being called injustice really are injustice. I'm not going to wade into specifics here this morning, but that is our task. As I said, to evaluate what is truly injustice and what is actually not injustice at all. Christians, we need, we must be on the side of justice where Christ is and where Christ shall still be when he returns with the sword in his mouth to judge the nations. Christians, brothers and sisters, we must be on the side of justice. But we do not necessarily need to be on the side of the majority, whatever the majority is saying at any given moment. Sometimes the majority is right. Other times the majority is wrong. If as Christians we happen to side with the majority, with the masses, if we happen to agree with what is popular at any given moment, it's incidental. We don't make our decisions as Christians by tallying up how many are for and how many are against. We don't follow the mob. We follow Christ. And so we need to think carefully and biblically about what actually is injustice and what is not truly injustice. We need to identify correctly where there really is injustice and where there is mere rhetoric. And then we need the convictional courage to stand against real injustice. And we need convictional courage to not stand against that which is not truly unjust. And to be willing at times to say, the emperor has no clothes. Then another task facing us. The first task is to evaluate what is truly injustice and what is not truly injustice. The second task facing us is to evaluate proposed action steps toward justice and proposed solutions to injustice when perceived injustices have occurred. Are the action steps proposed? Are the solutions proposed? Good, biblically sound plans? Have we defined justice correctly in the first place? Has what is occurred really an injustice or not? Do we truly understand the issues at play? Or are we proceeding as the fool of Proverbs 18.2, who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion? Or elsewhere, another proverb says, whoever is hasty in his steps misses the way. Are these action steps hasty? These solutions put forward too hastily and, and do they miss the way? Will these plans, will these solutions, will these action steps 
actually result in more justice or will they compound injustice? After all, two wrongs don't make a right. And biblically defined, any plan that shows partiality to anyone, whether the great or the poor, is unjust. Go back and look at, Rev, uh, at Leviticus, pardon me, chapter 19 and verse 15, as we read earlier in the service. So we must discern what is truly injustice and what is not truly injustice. And then we must evaluate proposed action steps or solutions to injustice. These are two tasks, important tasks, facing us as Christians. We need to think carefully and biblically in these times about what truly is injustice and what truly is justice and what action steps and solutions are really good, biblically sound plans and which ones are hasty and miss the way and who is speaking knowledgeably and soundly about these things and who takes no delight in understanding but only in expressing his opinions. These are the tasks and they're very important tasks facing us as Christians in this current cultural moment. Having said all that, however, when we have thought clearly and biblically about the issues, and when we have identified real injustice, and when we have come to good, solid, biblically sound action steps toward more justice in this world, then let me reiterate. Let Christ's people do justice and advocate for justice. We must be with Christ, whose mandate involves restoring justice and righteousness in this earth, whose mandate involves establishing righteousness in his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, think carefully and biblically, but when we have done so, and when we have identified real injustice, and when we have come to good, solid, biblically sound action steps toward more justice in this world, let God's people do justice and advocate for justice. We must be on justice's side because we are on Christ's side, and Christ is on justice's side. So let Christ's people do justice and advocate for justice. That's what God says to those who have the capacity to do either justice or injustice, to rescue or not rescue in Psalm 82. He says, do justice yourself and rescue when it is within your power to do so. So let us be obedient to Psalm 82, but let us also align ourselves with the Messiah or the Christ of Psalm 72, who does the same. Let Christ's people do justice and advocate for justice. And let us also love mercy and walk humbly with God. These, of course, are the well-known corollaries to 
doing justice given to us by the prophet Micah. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. We are not to be haughty and arrogant and self-righteous as we advocate for justice. After all, who are we? Sinners ourselves. And how will we come to share in the blessedness of Christ's eternal reign in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells? By justice? Having earned that? Having merited that? Is it justice that will land us in heaven in the end? No. It's mercy. We will come to share in the blessedness of Christ's eternal reign in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells by mercy. We have been spared the wrath that we justly deserve. And we have been forgiven. It is not by our own works, not in me. It is not by our own works that we are justified and welcomed into God's kingdom, but by the mercy of God in Christ. Jesus lived an obedient life in the place of sinners who may claim his righteousness as their own. Jesus died a penalty-bearing death on the cross in the place of sinners who may claim his atonement as their own. It is only by acknowledging our sin and throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ that we have any hope of sharing in Christ's eternal kingdom of righteousness. So let this inform our tone as we advocate for justice. Do I see a racist? There go I, but from the grace of God. Do I see a corrupt judge? There go I, but for the grace of God. Do I see a police officer brutalizing someone? There go I, but for the grace of God. Do I see an irate activist swung to the other side of the pendulum, perpetuating injustice of his own or her own. There go I, but for the grace of God. Do justice, yes, but walk humbly with God. And what is your preferred outcome? That the racist or the corrupt judge burn in hell? or that he be saved from his sin. Both result in the cessation of injustice. If he's sent to hell, the injustice stops. If he's saved, the injustice also stops. So either outcome results in the cessation of injustice. One is strict justice, he gets what he deserves in hell. The other is mercy.
love mercy. Christ's eternal kingdom of righteousness, justice, blessedness is not going to be full of a bunch of people patting themselves on the back for how well they did justice and advocated for justice in the here and now. Christ's eternal kingdom of blessedness, righteousness, justice is going to be full of a bunch of people who recognize that they are there because of mercy. Oh, they love justice now. Every one of them loves justice now. But it's because God changed their heart. They'd act against injustice now if there were any in the future eternal state. But it's because God changed their heart. Christ's eternal kingdom will be full of people who do justice. But it will be full of people who do justice and yet love mercy because they themselves have been shown mercy. And it will be full of people who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God because they themselves know what their sins justly deserved and what God did in Christ that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes. And so Christ's eternal kingdom will be full of people who do justice, but people who also love mercy and walk humbly with God. May we become such a group of people, even in the here and now. Let us not wait for the culmination and the fullness of Christ's kingdom before we become a people who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God.